0: Welcome to Don't Talk to Me Unless It's About This. Today, we are combining my two great loves of music and books. I'm here with a musician I love, Ellie Barber, who performs as Olella. Ellie is an indie folk cellist and vocalist and songwriter. Ellie and I are going to talk about her music, and we've also been reading a book together. We've been reading Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zahner. So we're having part one of our conversation on the book going up to the end of chapter 9, which is page 118. And the layers of music and literature just get deeper because the author of this book is also a musician who goes by the name Japanese Breakfast. Ellie, let's start by learning more about you and your musical life. Will you tell me about your evolution as a musician and artist?
1: Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me. I started as a musician, um, well, my mom says that I sang before I talked. (laughs) So, you know, probably in the one to two range. (laughs) And it's been a, being a musician has been part of my life ever since then, basically. Um, I started on the piano very little, when I was very little, and um, then started playing classical cello when I was nine in public school, and then, yeah, continued with classical cello uh, through middle school, high school, um, went to college in part for it, I was on a music scholarship, and um, that I was going to go into music business, and then I also discovered science. Well, at college, so studied both alongside each other, and um, yeah, and then after college, started playing stuff outside of classical music and discovered folk and the Americana folk genre, and started singing and playing with my cello, writing my own tunes, um, and so pretty much the 10 years. Uh, I've been out of college. That's been my focus musically is writing my own uh, music, mostly in this indie folk, Americana folk genre and um, performing with bands. And then I just, a few years ago, launched this solo project as Olela. Um, that's kind of a quick and dirty progression of my musical 30 years of life.
0: <laughs> that's great. Do you find you have a are you seeing themes to your your songwriting process in terms of, okay, it usually starts with the title or it starts with a certain idea. And then is there kind of any patterns you've seen in your songwriting process?
1: Yeah, I think as I've matured as a songwriter, it has become a little bit more of a uh, a practice and a understanding how it, uh, like my best way to write songs. And I, I find that I typically, um, because I'm a cellist first, I think that's usually what I start on. I come up with a chord progression and a melody, um, or sometimes melody, then chord progression, just because I'm always like singing and making noise. (laughs) Um, And oftentimes in car rides, actually, I will uh, be singing to myself and come up with a fun melody that I'll record on a voice memo or something, and that could be a nugget that can blossom into a song. But typically it's the the music first and then um and then i'll add more melody and lyrics on on top of that um which i think lyrics have always been a little intimidating to me because i um because i am trained as a musician and um less as a poet per se um but i think as I'm practicing and exercising these muscles on a kind of more routine basis, it's coming, it's coming more, uh, but it generally kind of like, it's that progression, I would say.
0: I would love just, I feel every song that I listen to, I would love like a whole, you know, some little fly on the wall following that musician through the whole thing. I just think it's fascinating hearing how these things come together.
1: Yeah. It's, it's so funny it's sometimes it's like something hits you from nowhere and that's the idea of kind of the muse you know and you can follow that or sometimes you just are on a deadline and you need to write a song for something and you just gotta spit it out and (laughs) make it happen and um i definitely love writing songs from a more emotional uh place which generally is more of this kind of getting struck by lightning by something but um you can't necessarily depend on that. If it's your profession, you, you know you want to have like mm-hmm. a, a little bit more of a dependable
0: um, strategy. So it kind of goes back and forth between those. Do you have any kind of structure of every day? I sit down for this amount of time with with my cello, and and I'm thinking through things or practicing something. Or is that more fluid? What does that look like?
1: I recently, within the last month, have really tried to Um, be more of the former of just sitting down an hour a day and and working on songwriting which um, has been somewhat challenging but it's one of those things that's like harder when you think about it ahead of time but when you actually start doing it it's it's actually not that bad you're just kind of like editing and working all the time and with music there's always something to productively procrastinate with to keep me from song of songwriting <laughs> whether it's like sending emails or practicing for a gig that's coming up or um you know like social media whatever and um so i'm really trying to you know create that container that safe container of like okay every day we're gonna do this mm-hmm. and, um, I mean, yeah I'm, i would say i'm getting into that
0: <laughs> yeah the resistance to starting intimidating things you know like creative work i think is is big yes yeah it's very big is
1: do you ever um have that with like this podcast or other creative
0: i have that with i've been working on some creative writing and i have it with that i also i i run and i feel like there's a lot of similarities between running and writing in the like mental blocks that come up and so i feel like mm-hmm. it can be the same way where you know every time you feel better after even if it was like a hard run or a hard writing session you know you get something out of it and yet every time your brain forgets and is like I don't know maybe this time it won't be worth it <laughs> maybe you shouldn't <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's such a cool comparison I hadn't thought about that but
1: I I'm not like I wouldn't qualify myself as a runner but I I do resonate with that like I like exercise and it always feels better after and the getting out of the door for some reason is can be tough and it, yeah i totally agree that it's similar with this like you have to push through a little
0: bit of uncomfort to get to the mm-hmm. the starting is the hardest yes. yeah well tell me what led you to pick crying in hmart for our book club pick
1: yeah this is kind of a cool uh, convergence of many things in my life right now but uh so this book Came to me from a friend in the fall who had uh, recommended it to me just as someone who would really relate to it on a couple of different levels. And I um, hadn't picked it up until basically we started talking. It was perfect timing. I just started reading it. And um, at the same time, Michelle Donner, the author, had been a part of NPR's Tiny Music or Tiny Desk Contest um, as a judge. And so the Tiny Desk Contest is this thing that NPR puts on every year um, where thousands of people will submit entries um, of them playing behind a Tiny Desk and then they um, they pick a winner to come play at the NPR Music Tiny Desk. And um, so there's many judges involved in this process and, and Michelle honor was one of those And she actually, uh, picked my video as one to feature, uh, as part of the contest. And so it was a cool, uh, convergence where, um, I kind of, I always loved kind of her voice artistically already. And so it felt really special that she was the one that chose our video and, um, and yeah, loving the book so far, too. So
0: it's um it's cool to have all these things come together. Definitely. I'm going to link to the your NPR Tiny Desk submission in the show notes because it's great. It's so well done. And I love Thank that you. song, Lava.
2: Look at you if you're not careful as he lends out his little head. He says, I don't know why you always follow me down safe to. I don't know why you own follow me to my singing, shan't be so I don't know why you won't follow me, I don't say think they know. I don't know why you owens follow me, because I know just where to go.
3: Oh My name is Holly Gregg and i've had the privilege to play a couple gigs with Oléla, including recently a tiny desk tour show at kexp which was awesome she also did cello for two songs on my upcoming album which i'm super super stoked about i'm obsessed with Oléla's music basically the first time i saw her on stage i was just absolutely absolutely mesmerized and was like who is this human yeah i think my favorite song is methuselah really i think all of her songs have this like timeless quality about them. Just the beautiful beautiful timbre of her voice and these amazingly unique like, you know, instrumental arrangements that she does with the cello. I love the rhythmic way that she plays her cello and you know creates both like percussive sounds while also, you know, playing these really dope chord progressions. I just think all of her songs uh, just like transport you. And just create this really, really like magical, um, kind of just like eerie, beautiful vibe. I love things that are both eerie and beautiful.
0: <laughs> and it was funny to me that you mentioned this book because I actually usually don't really like nonfiction and memoir. But I have uh, I have two friends who we we've discovered we have identical taste in, in uh, books, and so we're constantly sharing books with each other. And I think when this had come out, one of those friends texted and was like, this is this great book crying at H Mart that she actually started thinking it was fiction. And then, you know, at a certain point, she realized it's it's not fiction. And so she had said, you know, it really reads like fiction. Um, and so it had been on my list of books to read. And so when you said, let's do that, it was like, perfect. This is so perfect. This is the time.'" <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's so amazing to see a, a lyricist to write a book. I, I feel like it's, we often don't get that unless they're these like very seasoned artists, you know, like Paul McCartney or something, you know, uh, so it's cool. I think she's 33, you know, she's young. Yeah, I think so. And she already has, I mean, she's such a powerhouse. She already has like a New York Times bestselling book and a Grammy nomination. So it's just cool to hear her voice and how good of a writer she is,
0: you know, even Mm -hmm. though her main thing is his music. I've, in the past few years, started to be more conscious about always reading the about the author page because it's cool to see how many times, you know, I think as a kid, I just had this idea, like people who write books, they are professional writers. That's all they do. And how many times actually someone is also a professor or they you know, just have some kind of other job and they also write a book. And I think that's maybe that's even more likely how a lot of it happens. And I I love knowing that people are, you know, multi-passionate, multi-talented like that. Totally. Yeah. It's almost like you have to have
1: another job to be a writer because there's just really like raking the funds. Yeah. (laughs) Fortunately. I think so. Yep. But Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I imagine it, it um, brings interesting perspectives to the literature we read too, you know, that have these multifaceted people writing.
0: Definitely. And I'm actually, so I'm new to listening to her music and I started to listen to it and go through and read her lyrics to see kind of, you know, similar mm. themes or anything, but I, I actually stopped myself with just her first album since I've only read the first half of the book, cause it's like, okay, everything else. And the first album came after, you know, the time period she's talking about, but it's it's really about her mom's cancer. So I feel like it's mm-hmm. relevant in that way. Um, but then I'm waiting to really go deep on the rest of her music after that because I'm wondering, you know, how far into how far into the timeline her second half of the book's going to go. That's
1: such a good idea. That's inspired me. I'm gonna do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Nice. Yeah, I love I love reading
1: lyrics. (laughs) Totally. And when you have context for them, it it just brings a different element of depth, you know, especially when it's not explicit context, but you kind of have an idea
0: of maybe what was going through her head at this time. Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: Yeah, very cool.
0: So, yeah, we've read halfway. We're going to talk about the first half up to the end of chapter nine. And I wanted to start with talking about Michelle's mom's advice to always keep 10% of yourself for yourself. I'm curious, what did you think of this advice? And do you feel like you saw that advice playing out in the book in Michelle's life? It's such a
1: good question. I'm so glad you latched onto that part too, because that is the one part that has really stuck with me in this first half is, I mean, obviously many parts have stuck, but I've thought about that a lot. And I, I wanted to disagree with it. I think I wanted to disagree with, like, you should always keep 10% of yourself, but I find myself keep coming back to really agreeing with it. And um, I think it's it's such an interesting question because we we like to think that we can, like, the the closest thing that I think of is, like, romantic relationships that I've been in and recognizing that, like, the moment that I really admit to them, they start to work, you know? And so if you start to take away percentage points, um, then it starts to fall apart a little bit. And so, but it was interesting to think about it in this context and um, how keeping 10% of yourself to yourself and everything you do feels um, kind of like just carrying a little home. With yourself wherever you go you know and being able to catch yourself no matter what happens um even if it is a romantic relationship you know you need to maintain your sense of self <laughs> hopefully more than 10 yeah, percent but <laughs> um but yeah i think it, it really reminded me of this differentiation that i've been thinking on uh between loneliness and aloneness um where i think as we age there will always kind of be like you're kind of like grieving these things that are happening in your life and and there's a certain tinge of loneliness to them i think i think especially i've noticed this with like birthdays as i've gotten older they're just like every year, I love celebrating my birthday, but every year they're like a little bit lonelier, no matter how many people are like, I'm sharing it with or who it is. And um, and I feel like that 10% kind of represents that, that like sitting with yourself and like you're there with yourself your whole life. And so it's good to keep that with you. um.
0: No matter what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. But <laughs> it does. Well, it makes me really want to. I wish, you know, I could ask her mom more of what she means by it because I feel like there are many interpretations. And, you know, is it, you know, on the surface level, it could be seen as kind of like, oh, kind of keeping secrets. Um, mm-hmm. But I like, I like your analogy of kind of keeping a home for yourself and always, yeah, being comfortable with yourself on top of the people that you're around. Um, I also want to disagree with it. Like, no, we really, we don't keep secrets or, you know, I give all, I'm an open book to the people who love me. Um, and then when I think about it though, I'm thinking of, I'm, I'm married and like my husband doesn't know everything about me. You know, we haven't sat down and like talked through every part of my life and every (laughs) thought and feeling I've ever had. Um, and, and I do think you need to be at home with yourself. And so maybe I would word it differently if I was trying to give this same advice. Um, yeah. But I, I feel like that is kind of what she was getting at, um, you know, and I, I think I really latched onto this quote because I loved the way she brought it back when she, like throughout the the first half so far that she brought it back. I think in reference to her father saying like she wished that he would keep 10% to himself Mm -hmm. when she felt like she couldn't handle his grief on -hmm. her plate. Um, And then it was like heart wrenching I think towards the end of this half when she brought up, you know, I never imagined my mom was keeping 10% of herself from me. And so I thought it was, you know, beautiful writing the way she brought that back and looked at it from, you know, the like receiving and giving end of that. Mm -hmm. Keeping the 10%.
1: Yeah. Crazy, too, to think about in your own life, people that you think you know so well and recognizing that, yeah, they have things that I don't know, you know, like Mm -hmm. even my best friends who I know a lot about. There's still so much I don't know about them. Totally. Whether they're doing that on purpose or not, keeping it to themselves, you know, who knows?
0: (laughs) Right. Well, and it depends on you know when you've met them in life. Um, mm-hmm. I I grew up in this very small one square mile town where everybody oh knew everyone, and I remember it was so weird going to college and I was like, I don't know my friends' parents and brothers and sisters and <laughs> you know all these details about their lives. Um, and well, yeah, when you meet friends in adulthood, you know you kind of might skip a lot of that stuff. Uh, you've never seen the house they grew up in. You've, you know, there's all this stuff that is a separate part of them that you weren't a part of. And and even my friends that I've had since, you know, baby times, I haven't lived every moment of her life next to her. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah,
1: totally. Close to it, but not all. It's, yeah.
0: <laughs> I, this reminds me kind of of a
1: recent thought I've been having about Facebook and how I still have a Facebook only because... I'm a musician and we have to have them as musicians unfortunately (laughs) but I was like trying to figure out how to erase all my photos on my personal Facebook page because I got to this realization that I just like I don't know if people need to know what I was doing in my early 20s you know like Mm -hmm. (laughs) not that people probably care that much to go that far back but I just like I'm such a different person now that it's not worth anybody's time to think about that.
0: (laughs) Yep, I remember doing the same thing, and it's funny because I think now I'm like, I wonder if they've changed their settings, and like I need to go back and redo (laughs) these. I thought they're (laughs) hidden; they're maybe not.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) I don't know, but it is like I guess that speaks to our world of like social media, how people do seem to know more about us now than maybe in our parents' generation. Um, there was less transparency of what people are doing. Maybe we're keeping even less than ten percent,
0: <laughs> yeah, well, it makes you think too about my desire to know all of someone. You know when I mm-hmm. come across a a book I love, I want to know everything about the author um, and actually, one of my favorite authors is is Sally Rooney. Do you know her books? Yeah, yeah. And she talks so publicly about like, guys, this isn't. This is like a thing you need to figure out as to why you're all obsessed with learning about authors. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's not productive. It doesn't enhance the art. Like, this is a weird thing. And I appreciate her spitting that back in my face to reflect. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, wait, uh, I want to be. Happy. Yeah, why do I want that? You know, what part of that is like, an invasive bad human quality um and like how could i channel that interest elsewhere right
1: right right right
0: i read her most recent one uh what was it called beautiful world where
1: are you yes yeah and it have you read that one yes i i thought it was so well written because it does you assume that a lot of that is autobiographical for her just because it is about a wealthy writer and or like someone that Um, is doing really well and uh, but she does leave so much you know you have no idea how much of it is is real or not but I think it it speaks to our interest in just knowing if what we do is is like other people you know like that that curiosity that we have for other people like I was also just analyzing Sally Rooney's book being like oh my god like I want to know your secret. I want to know what yes. your life is like outside of this public persona. And do you also like pick your nose sometimes and
0: like <laughs> do yes, little weird things that we all do, you know. I think like, that is part of it. Especially you know her books expose some really like nasty thoughts uh and mm-hmm. you know really insecure thoughts that people have and so it, there is this part of It would be comforting to know, does Sally Rooney, this person I admire, you know, really feel that way? Maybe it's okay that I do, too.
1: Yes, yeah. I feel like the best art is, that's like one of the major um, components of the best art, is it helps us feel seen in these moments that we don't talk about always,
0: you know? Absolutely. Or comedians. I feel like
1: they're really great at that.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes. Do you have any favorite comedians? Um, I've been on a bit of an Ali Wong kick. Uh,
1: I, have you watched her specials on Netflix?
0: I actually no, I haven't. I am always looking to watch and consume more comedy in ways. Um, and I find I think my biggest issue is I don't really watch much. Like that doesn't that's not really built into my life. I'm very into listening to things. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I'm, but I'm still always looking for recommendations of comedians too you know yeah consume their work in some way definitely check out ali
1: wong's netflix specials they're just they're hilarious not everyone thinks she's as funny as i think she is i think but um but i think she's she's killer and she's very uh she's her humor is just so intelligent i think and you can tell that she um i mean they're all craftsmen and women who are like these comedians you know it's quite an art form but um, I heard a podcast with her once Um, Conan O'Brien was was interviewing her about her process and it was just badass like
0: she it works hard and you can tell and she's a lot of fun that's great I would love to listen to that and I also appreciate that you got that you got the message of, oh, she works really hard out of that interview because it's it's refreshing to know that these things don't just come naturally to people. And I appreciate when someone's honest that, yes, this took a lot of work and second guessing and editing and mm-hmm. questioning. Like, I didn't just spit out this one hour spiel yeah. the first go. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Like in this podcast, she talks about how her process for coming up with her material for a special is telling jokes that um it shows and seeing who laughs at what and then you know like taking those all those little bits and eventually putting them all together but it means that in the process you just have to bomb over and over like you have to be hit by that rejection of the jokes that don't land and, and that's why her specials are so good um, and I've also heard from people who have seen her live that like Actually, I think from most people I've heard that have seen her live, it's just maybe like three people, all of them were like, yeah, she's okay, you know. But it's like she was probably doing that, you know. She was like, like I'm here to try material on you. And um... and I find uh, songwriting and performing is, is similar to that. I'm starting to like take that approach of like trying on so- songs to see how they land and cutting the ones that don't.
0: And then, you know
1: compiling the ones that do
0: Mm -hmm. so are you finding yourself kind of more quickly playing songs live or how do you test okay is this a song i want to go deeper with or not
1: yeah i usually i pay attention to what people comment on at the end of the show and uh, there are some songs that routinely people will comment on and so those you know get definitely put into the save pile and then um you know ideally then you you do a show with none of those and see what people comment on and then mm. uh, those in the save file i haven't quite gotten to that point because it's also really comfortable to play the songs that that you know work <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um but i'm starting to incorporate kind of this more like writing faster performing
0: um more often, these things I feel less comfortable and seeing what happens. hmm Well, it's, I think, you know, as a musician, I think to myself, okay, when I'm in the crowd, sometimes it's a dancey song and I'm dancing. And that's, you know, a clear giveaway to the musician. You know, she mm-hmm. likes this song. But then I think if yeah. there are other songs that are like slower and maybe, you know, I might not look like I'm loving it, but I am. Do you find, and it sounds like hearing comments from people is really helpful do you find you're able to read a crowd or is that hard to do? It's so hard,
1: especially as someone who doesn't play very dancing music. And man, during the pandemic with masks, there was no... Yeah. People, <laughs> you know, you just see these eyes and like <laughs> media bopping heads in a sit-down <laughs> audience. who <You're> like,
2: oh. <laughs> um.
1: But I... Yeah, I really, for me, I think what I'm noticing really hits people with my music is the kind of like more emotional components of it, and that's stuff that I yeah never know unless somebody
0: tells me, you know. Hmm. So yeah, it's helpful. Yeah, that's tricky. Yeah, I think a comedian, it's just they laughed or they didn't. <laughs> I know. <laughs> right. I'm like, did they cry? <laughs> yeah, crying <laughs> could be
1: good. Right. Pretty- yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally, yeah. I I feel like more often that people are like crying or have chills during my sets rather than dancing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're like, did you leave here emotionally wrecked? Good, I'm gonna
1: yeah. publish those songs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you may have not thought you were coming to therapy, but <laughs> here we are. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's... Um, i mean it's so cathartic for me too because i'm also processing my emotions in those moments too that's part of my
0: songwriting practice so do you find that you'll write when you're in the midst of something or do you wait for something to kind of have passed to write about it Mm, i'm
1: typically a uh right after the fact person i think in the moment i'm usually a little too wrapped up in whatever emotion is happening and oftentimes i think i don't even i don't sit down to write the song about the thing it's like i'll be writing a song and i'll start saying a word and this melody that i came up with and it'll be about like my song walking on fire for example is about i was living uh, north of the bay area at the time and it was during the pandemic and it was Uh, during the wildfire season it was the day that the sky turned neon orange (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that day just deeply deeply profoundly affected me and about six months later I wrote a song on about it and the process to start that song was just I kept like coming up with this melody of like walking on fire were the words that were coming out of my mouth and then it just kind of like spewed from there you know yeah which is a super cool part of the songwriting process
2: got my flashlight is 10 a.m the sun is somewhere hiding never seen it so dark before Only in stories and folklore. Walking on
0: fire,
2: where to go?
0: Walking on fire. Do you find also kind of other things get wrapped in and suddenly the song is, it's about a couple things at once that had, you know, maybe a common theme? Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. It's... It's so interesting because it's like pulling pieces of your brain out onto a page. And sometimes you don't even realize what it's about until after you write the lyrics down and you're like, oh. That's (laughs) what I was
3: thinking about that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I hadn't realized that. (laughs) That's cool. It's like a dream interpretations. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: Totally. Well, back to... The book, I love, first of all, I love that t- one topic about the book can branch into all these other areas of, you know, of conversation. Um, so I think that's just it's a fun thing to see for, yeah. you know, an author, like authors never know what their book's going to yeah. make people think about or inspire in them. And I love just that, you know, we start with one question and then it leads to all these other things. So we had, we had talked about how Michelle, you know, she writes about wishing for simpler times um, when she was a teenager and then later in life realizing, oh, a lot of times people look at their teenage years as their simpler times. And I kind of had that in reverse. Um, And even though her teenage years were so tumultuous, later in life when she's, you know, 25 and going through her mom's cancer treatment, she's realizing, okay, maybe they actually weren't so. You know, I think maybe it's a combination of her looking back with rose-coated glasses and seeing it in comparison to, you know, facing her mother's life. That's a huge juxtaposition. And it made me think about, you know, what are times that I look back on or look forward to as if, like, things are just going to be better or things were better. Yeah, yeah. Do you have times that you either look forward to or look back on of, like, grass is always greener? hmm yeah. I think I also have that forward-looking. I'm like, oh, everything will be fine
1: when X happens. Mm-hmm. And of course, the truth is, you never rhyme, etc., etc. But, um, yeah, I think I really r- relate to this book on many levels, but one of them is that I was also a very angsty teenager and, um, who was obsessed with the Northwest music scene. And um, part of that for me was because a lot of my a lot of my family members uh, like died of cancer before I was uh, in high school probably or probably pre-college I think I had like seven family members die of, of cancer and one of them was particularly intense and that really like fueled my love for music i think because i just didn't understand at that point what like there was just so much death around me and i was like did nobody else experience like no one else seems as sad as i am like what what's happening because you assume it's normal and then the moment i realized it wasn't normal then i um I just got confused and didn't have a way to process all the emotions. I think, think, and so yeah, I actually feel like I relate to that feeling of of like I really don't feel like my teenage years were rosy years, and and even like it all kind of started when I was like eight or nine. So it so so much of that period of my life just feels like at this point. Thus far, like the darkest part of my life. So it's only been like getting better, which is nice. (laughs) Um, But I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure I'll be hit by things um, in the future that are, that rock me, you know, in a way that I just haven't been before.
0: Um, Do you remember? Sorry, go ahead. Do you remember in high school? you know, grieving and trying to relate to friends or kind of find comfort in, the, in them. And was that helpful or was it too much of a distance of, you know, if they maybe didn't have experience with, with grief or death, they weren't able to be your comfort in that?
1: Yeah, I think I just, I didn't have a language for it. I didn't even think to try and talk about it because I didn't, um I didn't think that was something that you did. My family was also pretty like emotionally reserved and wasn't super open about that kind of thing. So I just thought that you just held these things. And I do remember one moment in particular, you know, like an art class in like eighth grade. We were like smashing something. I forget what we were smashing. But I like made some side comment about like getting... My pent up angst out or something like that, and my friend was like, "You have pent up angst? Like, why do you have pent up angst?" And I was like, "You don't." Yeah, <laughs> and I
3: thought
1: that was like the only way to release your emotions, you know. Um. So yeah, I don't think it was until like, uh, I don't know. Probably like five years ago did I really actually start like processing
0: all of them, you know? Mm -hmm. It almost sounds like, was it, do you feel like it was kind of these, maybe the words like secondhand emotions that were coming up when you were a teenager, not realizing, oh, this is grief. This is part of this process because like you said, you didn't have the language for it. And then it took a while to get to, oh, that's why I was feeling angsty Mm -hmm. or, or this way or that way.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, I feel like there's so much perspective now that I am realizing. And 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 also like looking back at the teenage years and being like, Oh, and that's a particularly angsty time for most of us, you know, like Mm -hmm. that's transition that we're all going through and (laughs) um and so there's almost a comfort too in knowing, like, okay, there was a lot going on, but but a lot of us had a lot going on at that time, you
0: know. Hormonally, the cards are not stacked in our favor. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. It's just like seeing now. Um, now, if I like see a teenager, I just, um, I just have so much empathy for them. I think. Just knowing, I don't know if other people feel this, but
0: I'm, I just want to like give them a hug and feel like
1: it's going to be okay.
0: I feel the same way. I live near, well, it's an elementary school and then there's, you know, the bus for the middle school nearby and I'll pass, you know, a kid walking to school in the morning and I'm like, I just want to tell them, I hope you have a good day. And anyone who's mean to you today isn't going to matter. Like <laughs> there's, mm-hmm. there really is a lot to. you're going through at that time and like you said you don't always have the the language or the skills to process all that's happening in your life
1: Mm -hmm. and it's like i feel like we're starting to see this in school some schools probably private schools mostly where the education is like also incorporating emotional learning and, and language um but and it's And it makes you think about the fact that we're like, we're taught to think, but we're not taught to feel, you know, or like talk about our feelings. But it's so important. Mm -hmm. And it's truly a skill. Like you have to learn it, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it really is. Um, That's, yeah, that's a big hope of mine for education. I used to be a teacher. I taught Mm -hmm. a little bit of everything, actually, pre-K through 12. Um, But when I worked in a high school, I remember thinking, you know, if I could change anything about this, it would be just like basically canceling all class and doing group therapy all the time. Nice.
1: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <Very exciting. laughs> they would learn so much.
0: <laughs> I think it would be great. Or at least if we did, yeah. you know, 50-50 uh-huh. school and group therapy. I just, yeah, I think those and especially knowing it's not really you don't really need the kind of knowledge you used to need um yeah yeah, I think it's more important than ever yeah and you're you're a mom right yeah
1: Mm -hmm. you think about this and you're um like as you raise your kid and
0: yeah she's she's only one so um but it is definitely it makes me reflect on how I see Hard emotions like I get so stressed when she's crying and you know she's now is you know entering the like toddler tantrum kind of phase and it makes me realize I don't think I should let it's not a good thing that I let myself get stressed or see this tantrum that she's having as bad because Mm -hmm. you know that's reflective of myself of I don't like when I feel angry or lonely or sad or any of those like quote negative emotions and so Mm -hmm. I'm trying to trying to look at it differently and also trying to think, you know, oh, the kind of default things people say to a crying baby is like, you're okay, you're okay. I'm like, on the one hand, that's, you know, maybe trying to comfort them, like, it's going to be okay. And I also don't want to be dismissive of like, don't cry. Um, And so it's almost nice that I can start thinking these things through before she can actually like talk, you know, kind of have some time to warm up uh, how I want to approach that. Um, yeah. And I also with the whole, you know, looking at the grass is greener. I noticed for myself, it's very easy for me to just always look a little bit into the future and be like, it's going to be so much better once we're past this phase or like, Mm -hmm. you know, when we're there in elementary school, like I'm going to be a whole new person because my kids will be self-sufficient and all this stuff. And Mm -hmm. I try to hold back on try to balance myself acknowledging like yes i think this baby phase is going to be one of my harder phases i think for my personality this is one of the harder times um and also not letting myself just like live for the future and try to appreciate what i can Mm -hmm. in the you know harder present time
1: right yeah which is wild to think about because they just change so fast and it seems like as a mom you're just always dealing with so much change and adaptation
0: yep yeah (laughs) they are sometimes sometimes for the better of like oh good we're past that and sometimes (laughs) a new (laughs) challenge arises Yeah, you're like damn didn't think that was gonna happen (laughs) yeah (laughs) totally yeah
1: the ultimate the ultimate uncertainty (laughs)
0: yes (laughs) very much so So looking at Michelle's life in you know, at this point we followed her up until about 25 and she's gone through a lot of different stages of, I think, embracing or being really ashamed of her differences and the you know, the things that make her unique. And she talks about being half Korean at some points was a source of pride. At other points was a source of shame. Um, Same thing with being a musician. And it made me think about how, just how strong perspective and like your surroundings are in whether you see your differences as a negative or a positive. Have you, can you think of for yourself things that make you distinct that you've either had to like work on coming to terms with and not feeling ashamed of or bad about, or have there been other things that you're distinct for this and you've actually always really enjoyed that about yourself?
1: Yeah, such a good, um, such a good observation. I feel like with these bits of oppression, basically, there's always both shame and pride because the society is telling you to be shameful about it. But it kind of breeds this sense of pride because, you know, once you kind of are able to rise above the shame or, you know, they probably all, they probably coexist always, but... um, You kind of have to embrace the pride to live. And I definitely feel that with the musicianship and really relate to the way that she talks about that. I think I, it was always like music and the arts were always the thing that I naturally was just like really gravitated to, was easy for me and um, felt like, you know, my thing. And it was just always, like it was, it's never, creativity is not seen as like a a real intelligence, really, in the way that we teach intelligence. And so I think when I, when I was like starting to really commit to music a couple of years ago, like I've always played and it's been kind of a a part-time thing for me after college um, in part because I was like, oh no, I'm not, I'm not a musician. Like I'm, I have a real job, you know, I was like working at a climate Institute and, and I was like, (laughs) I think looking back, it's like kind of embarrassing to be like, wow, I was really judgmental of people who are full-time musicians. And now I am one. And it's, And going through that process of like committing to becoming one. um, I definitely had to work through that shame. I was like, man, are we really doing this? Like, darn it. I don't want to do that. But there's like always my whole life been something like very deep in me. That's like, this is your thing. Like do it. It's not going away. The more you avoid it, you know, it's like. I had to eventually listen, thanks to my Saturn return, I think. <laughs> and, um, and so there is kind of this, like, when you tell someone you're a musician, there there is quite a different response from some people. It's either like, oh, wow, cool, like amazing. Or it's like, oh, huh. Do you have like a job? Yeah.
0: <laughs> what do you really do? <laughs>
1: yeah, like, that's cute. <laughs> and um, uh, and like most musicians I know work way harder than like a lot of people in tech. <laughs> you know? <It's> yeah. Like <laughs> you gotta make that money somehow. And um yeah, so I think it's like the the arts are so interesting for that reason because they are so powerful and the people who get who get it get it, you know. Um and the people who don't just don't. I guess they just don't feel the like
0: the power that art can have. Hearing you share that made me think there are certain things that are acceptable to do when you haven't made it big yet. You know, it's it's acceptable to start a entry level office job at a corporation. And you're not the CEO right away. That's a good thing. But as probably in most art forms, it's not seen as an acceptable thing to do unless you're, you know, at the level of a Grammy Award winner, which is crazy because it's like, how else do you get there? <laughs> yeah, it's insane. And there are so many places worth being in between those two, you know, that like that doesn't even have to be the end goal.
1: I appreciate going back to the book like I was rereading the intro on the sleeve, and the first sentence is, when Michelle Zahner was in her mid-twenties working as a waitress and struggling to launch her music career in Philadelphia, she got a call that her mother was ill. And it just starts with like, Michelle Zahner was not always a Grammy-nominated musician. It's kind of nice to hear that.
0: It is, and I mean, at this point in the book, she hasn't you know had seemingly any traditionally defined success in music and so Mm -hmm. you know and I'm very curious to see in the second half of the book how we're going to if I hope that we're going to watch her music career develop because it is nice that they tell us the true story of how long she struggled and worked for
1: yeah me too I'm really curious about it too just from a selfish standpoint but. Um, I am amazed how, well, I'm amazed, like how fast it all seems to have happened. But then of course you look back and it probably didn't feel that fast to her. It was a lot of work. That's the thing. Looking at these kinds night things, you're like, in the moment, it feels like it takes forever. And then you're like, oh, it just like, all of a sudden it happened. I'm curious, too, to see how her experiencing her mother passing away, how that influences her progression
0: as well, if if it does. I assume it does, and she wrote a book about it. Right. Because she, I think there was the scene when she is in New York and finds out about her mother's sickness that she, you kind of get the sense that her, you know, the life is being sucked out of her, her creative juices. She's, I think it was she gave the example of usually on a summer night, you just feel the endless possibilities of life. And I just felt none of that. I felt like my life was coming to a halt. And so, you know, it's in that way, she's losing her creative energy. And I imagine though, that there will be a resurgence and, you know, maybe kind of a perspective moment of life is precious. I need to do what I love. Um, But even then, you know, you need more than just the drive there needs to be all these other things that happen to like really launch things so I'm curious what the sequence of events is going to be is there anything else that has stood out about the book for you that you want to talk about before we wrap up I
1: just have really enjoyed hearing about Korean cooking I think that that's something I I have had Korean food but not a lot and I am really enjoying just getting to know the Korean palate, like the flavor palette. It's just so different than the Italian food that I grew up with. So um, that's been a joy. I agree. So
0: the food descriptions are amazing. I actually went to an H-Mart by my house because I wanted to try mm-hmm. all the foods she was talking about at the food court. Okay, cool. But then the H-Mart I went to, I guess, is like a smaller one. So it didn't really have the food court. <laughs> um so i learned that i need to go to like the big time h mart um and i think there's one like 30 minutes away from me and i honestly i want to bring the book and order the things she orders because they sound so amazing
1: yeah oh that's a great idea i was just gonna say it's um it just all sounds really delicious and and cool to hear about kind of the the health components too of you know her mom is getting sicker and, and hearing about what Of food they choose based on, you know, wanting to restore her immune
0: system and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. I also really appreciate how complex she shows all that. You know, I'm I want to say characters because it's a book, but they're real people. Um, Of you know, she doesn't shy away from showing the ugly sides of herself, of her mom, her dad, of. Uh, I'm forgetting now the name of the woman who came to help watch her mom and just showing Mm -hmm. the true multifaceted, you know, the truth of all of us, that people aren't just good or bad. And I, I think it's easy for me to see things in this kind of black and white way. And I love that she really pushes me in that regard.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I've loved that as well. Well, we will be back to discuss part two and also learn more about your music and the most recent music you've been created. So thank you, Ellie, for joining me and I'm excited to have part two soon.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Caitlin. It's been a pleasure. Hello, my name is Melanie Granger from the band Push for Love, and I had the honor of performing with Olela oh yeah at the Tiny Dust Contest on the road. It was spectacular. Ellie is one of the most innovative and creative songwriters and celloists that are out there. And her music itself and the storytelling within her music is just top-notch. Her voice is like butter, at least to me. It's so milky and it's so soothing to the
3: ear.
2: I say, why are we doing this again? Because we keep our roots in the ground. But it's so hard to sell with these water and vestals. How many
0: times does we rewind ourselves when you keep on throwing mud?
2: You're losing ground.
0: You know what would make this podcast even better? Me saying, like less. And more importantly, this show would be better if you were on it. We want every episode to include audio messages from you. To make this happen, you need to know what the episodes will be about ahead of time. And I can share that with you when you get the podcast newsletter. Sign up at DontTalkToMePod.com. And you know that thing they all say about, please leave me a review? It would be really cool if you did that. So give it a thought. Hopefully a five-star thought. Thank you.
2: to the ground, swell it up from the ground.